tell me about the summary document that you're writing now. Are you the lead author or coordinating author on the whole thing, Peter, or what? I'm a section facilitator on section two, which is... NUI Minute's Professor Peter Thorne is kind of a big deal in climate science circles. ...that process, uh, six of us across the author team have been identified to be section facilitators. At the moment, the three mammoth intergovernmental panel on climate change, IPCC assessments of how broken the climate is and how to fix it, are being condensed into just one report. And Peter Thorne is one of six lead or coordinating authors on that project. It's important when representing the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to try and represent what they wish to be said rather than necessarily your own personal... um... The forces of history are rarely visible in real time. Even more rarely are those forces or ideas identifiable as individuals standing on opposite sides of a table to each other. But the scientists ringing the alarms and the politician gatekeepers with their hands on the levers of climate action met on May the 9th this year in government buildings. Who was there? Who was attended in person? Who was there remotely? So attending in person were a number of members of cabinet, about five or six in total in the room, uh, various uh, various department secretary-generals. Professor Thorne had been asked to give a presentation on what all of the IPCC reports had said about what was coming towards us and how it might be diverted. My task given was to present what the IPCC findings are and what they might mean for Ireland. Now, it would be an exaggeration to cast this specific meeting as a showdown between two antagonistic forces that will decide the future of the planet. But it is one of many in which the scientists try to impress upon the gatekeepers that we have three years left during which emissions must peak and then start to come down in order to keep the planet more or less as it is. And the politicians have not done what the scientists have told them must be done. So how will the gatekeepers of public policy respond? That I can't answer. But I can tell you exactly what they heard that day in government buildings and what they've done and haven't done since. I'm Philip Boucher-Hayes and this is Hot Mess, measuring the gap between what is being done and what needs to be done. Episode 12, Getting Hotter. And the very first thing to note is that recent changes in climate are widespread, rapid and intensifying. Professor Thorne began with a pointed history lesson and are unprecedented in thousands of years. For the last 10,000 years, this planet has been a very hospitable place for human beings. Earth handed up its bounty to us, and we gorged ourselves. But now, we're entering a phase where the planet will become actively hostile to our existence. Why does that matter? Well, we developed from hunter-gatherers to where we are today in a period which when you look in the long term in the geological record of climate change has been remarkably 
stable. And that stability matters because that stability allows us to plan, to build, to, to evolve how we do things in ways that a more unstable climate might not permit. The Cabinet was shown graphs illustrating how benign global temperatures have been throughout human development and how turbulent they have become recently. We also have in this graph a, a, a bar on the left-hand side that shows our estimate of the warmest it could plausibly have been in the last 10,000 years, the current interglacial, and where we are in the most recent decade has taken us outside of that space. So you would have to go back over 100,000 years ago to a time when climate was last on a sustained basis as warm as the past decade. And at that point, archaeological digs in Trafalgar Square in London have found alligators to give you an idea of how different that climate could, would have been. Alligators roamed this far north the last time the planet was as warm as it is today. For the past 10,000 years, we have been remarkably lucky. That period, a very finite period of time that has allowed us to flourish from hunter-gatherers through an, uh, through an agrarian and an industrial revolution to where we stand today. We have no idea how lucky we have been. Next was a slide that was a climate crystal ball for dummies, a no-nonsense explanation of why emissions have to, at the very least, hit net zero by 2050, if we're to keep temperatures below 1.5 degrees. So that really matters. It says if we want to keep to the Paris Agreement goals, we need to get CO2 to net zero, we need to half methane, we need to do a number of other things. But that's the fundamental of where we need to go. But even if we are to do that much, it will not spare us a lot of what is coming. Sadly, there are some things that we do not stabilise quickly. There are things that respond over centuries. There are slow motion aspects of climate change that we have set in motion. that We have no way of stopping that will carry on for centuries to millennia. Hence, and sea level rise is the biggest of those. And at this point he hit them with a map of Dublin under the five metres of sea level rise that is coming regardless of what we do or don't do. The Hill of Hoth is an island. Dublin Bay now starts at Cabra on the north side and Donnybrook on the south side. Malahide, Port Marnock, Sutton, Clontarf, Ringsend, Ballsbridge, Blackrock, Monkstown, Dunleary and Sandy Cove will all be gone. The River Liffey will now be hundreds of metres wide. All of the Docklands has disappeared. There is no such thing as North Bull Island any longer. Uh, water has come all the way up past the Guinness factory. Um, past Phoenix Park. So it's a very different Dublin that you would look, look at and if you looked at other cities in Ireland it would be much the same. 
And the next thing I wanted to really get across to the cabinet is we cannot have the attitude of being, we're all right, Jack. Because multiple extreme events that compound the risks and are more difficult to manage will become the norm. In an increasingly hostile to humankind world, there will now be catastrophic hurricane seasons, drought seasons, wildfire seasons, flooding seasons. These will doubtless be compounded by resource wars and probable pandemics, making large parts of the world uninhabitable. Ireland may not be directly affected, but will not remain untouched. So there are implications to climate change, even if the climate change impact is not directly felt in Ireland. There will be implications on livability, there will be implications on migration, on economic shocks. What do you mean when you say livability? Livability in, in, in the Indian subcontinent heatwave, we're really at the edge of human livability. We're really at the edge of whether humans can survive in that kind of environment. So this, this last spring we have come uncomfortably close to the edges of livability in an area of the world that houses hundreds of millions of people. Five minutes into Professor Thorne's presentation and the cabinet had a picture painted of Earth becoming somewhere that Mad Max meets Waterworld. Much of it well underway by the time that the current junior infant class are reaching the end of their lives. And his next slide is profoundly unsettling for those of us who are five years old in 2022. But if we were mad enough to go to three degrees centigrade, and that's where our current global policies would take us, much of the globe now has over three quarters of biodiversity lost. Is that again in the time span of those who are in the junior infants classes now? Three degrees centigrade is possible, possible that we would sadly pass that within this century. So yes, within the lifetime of today's junior infants, we cannot rule out a globe that is warmer by three degrees. And living in a world where three quarters of our flora and fauna has been lost. Yes, living within that kind of a world, it is a world that would be very, very challenging for numerous reasons to live within. So the science is clear, any further delay in concerted global action will miss a brief and rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. And that's a key statement from Working Group 2. And what really amazes me, actually, personally, is that those words were approved by every government in the world. And that includes Saudi Arabia, all of the petro-states? That includes Saudi Arabia, it includes India, it includes China, it includes Brazil, it includes the USA, it includes Australia. It is literally everyone. That is good, but... We're heading in fundamentally the wrong direction. The most recent decade, total global greenhouse gas emissions have been the highest in human history. And the recent EPA report on where our emissions cuts might bring us 
shows how far away Ireland is from properly playing its part. Those figures are only true if everything is done, if 100% of what has been promised is actually implemented. Absolutely, and everything about the future comes with the caveat if fully implemented, and everything that the past tells us is that full implementation is the exception, not the rule. But this bad news was leading to somewhere good. We have the tools, we have the know-how, we have the money. We just need to get on and do it. We're no longer waiting for technology or other solutions to appear. We know we can do it. We know we have all the tools in place. It needs investment and policies to push forward low emissions technological innovation. And to end, a call to action. The evidence is clear. The time for action is now. We need to stop talking. We need to start doing. chance to read the room afterwards or did they thank you for your time and usher you out quickly? I had a number of questions after um, four or five questions they were running late to start with coming in and that clarion call at the end we've run out of excuses we've run out of road for not doing anything any longer how did you sense they reacted to that? There is a general understanding that we cannot kick this issue down the road any longer but equally I have no doubt that after I left the room and they moved on I believe to the sectoral um, allocations for the carbon budget that it became a lot more nuanced um, than a discussion simply of the science at the very highest level. That's the sobering assessment of what the Cabinet was told by one of the countries, in fact one of the world's leading climate scientists. What did they hear after the break? So three weeks after Professor Peter Thorne gave that briefing to Cabinet, our Environmental Protection Agency announced that all of the existing emissions reduction policies only add up to 28% of reductions by 2030, when the science says that they need to be at 50%. I think at the moment we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk, and we need to move from this ideas to actually implementation. So on the one hand, Professor Thorne told government of the consequences of failing to reach the targets science has set, and the EPA, on the other hand, has just given them real-time information on how badly we are failing that test right now. In short, the government has been told that the sooner we get to net zero, the more of the planet that we save, the longer we take, the more that will be lost. 
Is that what they heard, though? I asked Government Information Services for an interview with any of the members of the Cabinet Subcommittee at Professor Thorne's briefing. That's the Taoiseach, Tónaiste, Finance Minister, Climate Change Minister, Public Expenditure, Social Protection, Agriculture, Tourism and Housing Ministers as well. I made the request three weeks ago and it was acknowledged, but no minister was made available for interview. Now, I'm not going to lie, I had originally planned that the second half of this episode would be an interview with a minister, so obviously a plan B is needed. And here it is. If you heard the last hot mess, you'll know we took a look at exactly how supportive Irish people were of the kind of sacrifices that other governments are asking in the name of climate action. The question we asked was, if you have two or more cars in your household, will you sell one of the cars and not replace it in the next 12 months? And the answer, when asked straight out, was not very. 5% is relatively low uh, compared to some of the other measures we have uh, tracked. But we also heard how when the reason behind a policy is explained and then people are polled again they become much more supportive and will often go further in what they are prepared to give up than the government had asked. It is hardly ever the case, if you ask the population should a tax go up, that they will say yes. What we found, just in 10 minutes of improving their knowledge, the majority of them then actually wanted the carbon tax to be increased. Armed with that information from the ESRI, I put in place a little thought experiment with a climate action policy copied from France. Ce vélo pourrait être danger. Emmanuel Macron's government tried to ban ads for SUVs, but there was strong pushback from the auto industry, so they have instead now required all ads for SUVs to carry messages promoting walking or cycling. Nouvelle Mercedes Classe E, virtuose. What good would this do? Restricting advertising obviously reduces people's exposure to messages inciting them to buy by appealing to comfort, convenience, status or economy savings. Monica Guillen is one of the co-authors of a study that looked at how influential car ads are. Marketing researchers recently calculated that an award-winning advertising campaign by Audi, the automaker, uh, resulted in the sale of almost 133,000 additional vehicles. Many of them were SUVs. Uh, so these extra sales actually contributed to an additional 5 million tonnes of emitted CO2. The starting point for Monica's research had been to find out why, if in Europe we are buying ever more electric or hybrid vehicles, do carbon emissions from transport continue to go up? The answer was, we are also buying more and more SUVs. Well, actually, SUVs consume on average over 22% more energy than a medium-sized car for the same distance travel disease. So, and we're seeing that the share of SUVs in total car sales, sales is also increasing. At the same time, that electric cars uh, sales are also increasing. The French government put it all together like this. Billions of euros being spent on marketing SUVs is working. That marketing success, though, is leading to millions of additional tonnes of greenhouse gases and is crowding out messages about alternative, non-polluting forms of transport. So the French asked themselves, 
what if we started thinking of car ads in the same way that we think of smoking, gambling or alcohol ads, something that promotes a societal harm? Are we ready for this in Ireland? Gerard O'Neill at Amora Consulting once again posed the question for me in an opinion poll. His instinct beforehand was that Irish people would be resistant to the French idea. We need to recognise the resistance sometimes people have to messages that are seen as maybe compelling them to do something they don't want to do. But when we got the polling data back, it contained a very big surprise. I found the the results quite fascinating for this question. Um, The fact is that nearly 6 in 10 adults think that car companies should, in their advertising, encourage people to walk or cycle, as they do in France. And I think that that's interesting because it shows that people are open to new ways of communicating ideas. They're certainly open to seeing businesses and advertisers playing a much stronger role in persuading people to change their lives and lifestyles with a car company persuading its audiences to walk occasionally is a very encouraging sign. How far might this little experiment go? Was it an idea whose time had come? I contacted sources in the relevant government departments and asked them were they working on anything like this? No, they weren't. So I contacted what are presumably the two biggest recipients of car advertising revenue in the country, RTE and Virgin Media, and I asked them for their reaction to the policy. RTE's Director General Dee Forbes passed on the opportunity for an interview, saying that she would prefer to leave this to the policymakers and the auto industry. Virgin Media's CEO Tony Hanway also declined an interview but said that in his personal opinion the policy was a dubious government intervention. I also contacted a number of main dealers for the major car brands but all declined to comment or give an interview. The first half of this programme had a very clear message from climate scientists. We need to do a lot more and do it much more quickly than we are at present. This little experiment shows that the public wants to see change, even things that are quite radical, like reprogramming our entire attitude to cars. But it also shows that the status quo will remain in the absence of somebody showing leadership, presumably because they feel that getting too far ahead of public opinion can be risky. The irony is, public opinion is already further ahead of them. I'll leave the final word on this to something that ESRI behavioural analyst Pete Lund said in a previous programme. If I was the minister for something or another and I was possessed of a great idea for solving the climate crisis or something that could make a positive contribution, what advice would you offer to me about either being too far in front of or behind public opinion? There is a real challenge in how far ahead of public opinion to get with climate change. Our evidence and other evidence that we would see around the world suggests you can get a good distance ahead. So there are quite a lot of policies that get introduced that are pro-environmental policies that are initially very unpopular but become very popular. 
So it would be a mistake for politicians to think that what they should do is look at public opinion and that somehow they have to be slave to it. This is an area where there are opportunities for leadership where policies that initially look unpopular are likely to become more popular over time. Now, of course there's a judgement to be made about how far ahead of the public opinion you can get, but the evidence would suggest you can certainly get some way and there's an opportunity for leadership. If this programme interested you, there are others in the series available for download. How we turn data centres from part of the problem to part of the solution. What do coastal communities need to do now to avoid disappearing underwater a hundred years from now? And how do we wean ourselves off Putin's gas and then all gas? You can get Hot Mess wherever you get your podcasts.